This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The worst drought in 40 years as climate change ravages the Horn of Africa. Climate change is bad for our health. This is not some distant future threat that's going to happen to poor people or farmers or only in developing countries or that it's only an economic issue. In Pakistan, as fields remain flooded, doctors are delivering medical care by boat. One degree or half degree increases has an exponential direct impact on the number of cases of cholera or the number of people dying from heat waves. I have never seen climate carnage on this scale. I have simply no words to describe what I've seen. Some of the countries are solving the problem of having less oil and gas from Russia by starting using coal again. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. And it's that time of year again. COP27 is approaching. That's the UN Conference on Climate Change. It actually doesn't seem that long that we were gathered here on the program to talk about COP26. And then we had the World Food Programme and the UN Refugee Agency in the studio to talk about climate change and the effect on hunger and on displacement. Now, unfortunately, in the year that's passed, the last 12 months, those situations haven't improved. Quite the contrary, the war in Ukraine has pushed up food prices, increased food insecurity. And of course, we have millions more people displaced because of that conflict. But There's something else as well. The war has caused some countries to fall back on fossil fuels to guarantee their energy supplies. Other governments look like they're backpedaling on their commitments to reduce greenhouse gases. They say the costs of the pandemic and now the war take priority. So what are the consequences? Today, we're going to look specifically at climate change and human health. We're seeing diseases that we never used to see, that we never were trained for. Uh, And I think part of that is because of climate change. Widespread scientific consensus tells us the world's climate is changing. These changes are creating new health risks in communities. The United Nations recently said climate change is the single biggest health threat facing humanity. Now, that's not just the increased risk of floods or droughts, but how climate change can cause disease to spread faster or even make human life unsustainable in some parts of our planet. So to join me to discuss something worrying, I'm delighted to welcome Nini Ikala-Nyman of the Red Cross. To look at the Horn of Africa, we're seeing a situation where There is drought on top of a locust infestation, there's a COVID-19 pandemic, there's a conflict going on. Lachlan McIver of Médecins Sans Frontières, some may know that as Doctors Without Borders. The best estimates we have are that for every one degree Celsius increase in temperature, there's going to be an increase of 5% in the cases and mortality in children. And our analyst, Daniel Warner. I understand what has to be done. I just don't see how we're going to get there unless we make some radical changes. Now, Ni, I'd like to start with you because the Red Cross and the UN Emergency Humanitarian Relief, OCHA, you recently came out with a report on extreme heat, which we've 
seen in Europe, but in all parts of the world, in fact. The findings, well, warnings really, quite worrying. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, thanks a lot, Imogen, for that. So indeed, this report is basically really bring our focus to extreme heat. And so what we find is that heat waves are going to be more intense, more frequent and deadlier. And this is often a bit of a silent killer. It's something that isn't as dramatic as, let's say, a flood that happens uh, as, as an, a rapid event. And so what we're really seeing is that heat is affecting us all, as you mentioned, but it affects the vulnerable in particular. And even within cities, you might be seeing that certain informal settlements are a lot more vulnerable than other parts of a city who are not able to protect themselves. Pregnant women, casual workers, the elderly are much more vulnerable than middle-aged people in the city, etc. And so this is really having an unequal impact within cities and within groups of people, um, with certain people being hit harder than others. And indeed, like you mentioned, we're starting to potentially be hitting physiological and social limits of where you can live in certain parts of the world, such as Sahel. And that is extremely worrying. This is a humanitarian crisis. The climate crisis is increasingly causing humanitarian crisis. And we see that every day. Lachlan of Médecins Sans Frontières, I saw you nodding there. And in fact, when I was in touch with you to set up this episode of Inside Geneva, you wrote to me, the problem is far bigger than most people realise in terms of health problems. Now, Nini was talking about people who can be particularly vulnerable to extreme heat, but there's also the issue of diseases which we try to control becoming less controllable. Definitely, Imogen, and thanks for having me on the show and for prioritising this topic. The health problems we face due to climate change are far greater both in number and scale, I believe, than than most people realise. Um, to follow on from Nini's point a moment ago about heat, we need to remember also that it's not only the direct effects of heat on human physiology that are dangerous and getting worse over time, it's the interaction of things like heat and air pollution, which is already responsible for something between 8 and 10 million avoidable deaths per year and is made worse by humidity, which are both consequences of climate change. So we're talking already in the order of millions and millions of avoidable deaths per year related to climate change. And that's even before we get to the devastating impacts on infectious diseases, those spread by vectors such as mosquitoes, those spread by water, certain respiratory diseases, non-communicable diseases, which are the main reason that people become sick and die um, in heat waves because they have chronic heart or lung or kidney conditions in particular. There are the um, the traumatic injuries and deaths from extreme weather events that we've alluded to already. And then the, the devastating and really sinister and silent consequences of, of climate change on mental health due to things like displacement, loss of land, loss of livelihoods from, uh, from Africa to the Pacific Islands. So we need to think a lot more broadly about what the consequences are of climate change on our health and consider what can be done to both minimise the immediate effects of those health problems, as well as the uh, drivers of climate change itself. Danny, I'm going to bring you in there and just a little perspective on, on the statistics. There is a report from the United Nations which suggests that in the next few years, climate change will directly cause a quarter of a million deaths a year. Lachlan, you've suggested it could mean a lot more and billions of dollars 
a year. Danny, and then Lachlan, I'll bring you, you in back in as well. I mean, I'm not denying the importance of climate change. I'm just raising a question. Imogen mentioned the word priorities. If we look around the world, we have greater inequality, poverty. We also have conflicts, the war in Ukraine. So my question is, is climate change the highest priority? And does it have kind of a trickle down to all of the other things we're talking about? Hands shooting up, Nini and Lachlan. Lachlan, I know you wanted to come in quickly on the stats, so I'll bring you in first. Thanks, Imogen. Look, just to point out that that figure that you quoted, which is from the World Health Organization, that 250,000 uh, deaths per year, that's a very explicit and deliberate underestimate on the part of WHO because in that estimation, they were not considering those bigger issues that we were just talking about, the air pollution and the mental health and most of the infectious diseases. They were only focused on malaria, malnutrition, diarrheal diseases and extreme heat. So it was a, a very conscious, narrow estimate. Then the problem is is far greater. And if I could take the liberty of just jumping in to respond to Daniel's question briefly, the concern about climate change is that it is probably the number one priority for many countries, including in, in Pacific Islands where I've worked, but for most other countries, particularly low and middle income countries, it is exacerbating those other problems. That's that's where the issue gets particularly thorny. It might not be the number one priority. It's making all those other problems, the inequalities and the the, the, the health system strains, it's making those worse. Nini, I saw your your hand and your eyebrows actually shoot up when when Danny said, you know, well, we have to talk about priorities and got the conflict and and the pandemic and so on. What did you want to say? Well, it was just that I think, especially as humanitarian actors, we're more and more seeing compounding crises. So it's not about the one individual shock. It's a vulnerability of people to multiple shocks. So if we look at the Horn of Africa, we're seeing a situation where there is drought on top of a locust infestation. There's a COVID-19 pandemic. There's a conflict going on. And so you're coming out of one shock. You're moving to the next one and the next one. Health is obviously in the mix, but so is food insecurity, water insecurity, economic losses, loss of life. And so that's really where we need to be starting moving to models where we're looking at integrated approaches to managing disasters and disaster risk. And this all comes together. And if we make people more resilient economically, socially, they'll be so whatever the shock is, basically. Um, so it's not one above the other. Danny? As a follow-up, Nidhi, could you give an example of an integrated approach somewhere that would include all of the things that you mentioned and I mentioned? Well, obviously, I mean, and then we need to be talking about layers and image, and you started with COP27. So I think it depends of, are we talking about global solutions, regional, national, or local level? As the Red Cross, we're very much focused on local level solutions. So I'll use some of the examples of the Red Cross work um, in Kenya specifically, where we might be working within a community to strengthen access to basic healthcare. We'll be looking at awareness and promotion programs on, on water sanitation and hygiene. At the same time, we'll be strengthening climate-smart agriculture approaches so that people have food. We'll be looking at what kind of crops are more economically viable and can provide some sources of income. We'll be combining that with education that is accessible both to women or indigenous groups, for example, as a way to increase your, your general knowledge and awareness of issues and, and your own capacities to act. And so that's just a, a simple example. And then we also very actively work on early warning systems so that some of these crises that we have, such 
such as heat um, and potentially also some, some disease outbreaks, we can know a bit in advance. So we don't have to wait until we're in the worst catastrophe. It's a little bit in advance. We plan already what we can do and we prepare people for those. So that's just a very small example of, of some of the work that you might want to be bringing small actions together in an integrated way. Worried parents are bringing their children to this clinic for treatment. As the cholera outbreak spreads, the very young are among the most at risk. At a village in the highlands of Western Kenya, they're fighting to stop the spread of malaria. Lachlan, all of this sounds really sensible. And yet, do you ever think these plans, which could do a lot of good, resilience plans, we're a bit running after we're playing catch-up? I mean, there's one specific disease outbreak this year, which the WHO has warned about, and what they've called an explosion of cholera outbreaks, more this last year than in the last five years combined. And they have attributed that to climate change. Now, this is an illness which can kill children in hours. Yeah, there's a few points within your point there, Imogen, I suppose. Um, One is that, yes, these what we have been calling for a long time vulnerability assessments in terms of the health impacts of climate change, which WHO and others have been conducting around the world for years, is is only the very, very first step. What we're really needing to do much more um, actively and broadly now are concrete steps both at at intergovernmental and national and community level to tangibly reduce the impacts of these problems. So cholera and and, and diarrheal diseases much more broadly are exquisitely climate sensitive. Cholera is the the kind of famous one, if you like, and it's certainly the the most deadly. But diarrheal diseases as a group are responsible for one and a half million deaths a year, mostly in children. It's one of the top three killers of children around the world. And the best estimates we have are that for every one degree Celsius increase in temperature, there's going to be an increase of 5% in the cases and mortality um, in children. So, you know, a back of the napkin calculation can lead you to conclude that climate change is going to therefore be causing around 70 additional children dying every day, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, because of climate change via diarrheal disease, almost the same numbers for malaria. So what we're doing at Every level we've been describing, whether it's putting in place early warning systems and, and, and policies and uh, you know, vector control and water sanitation hygiene programs, they're all important. But likewise, at community level, like in our MSF project in, in Mozambique, it's also important that we are sharing that information with the community, that we're harmonising our medical water sanitation hygiene and health promotion programs, acknowledging that community know this very well. They've been seeing the malaria season get longer and longer and more consistent over the years. They're seeing the cyclones coming more more frequently. Um, and these, these outbreaks of cholera are surprising to no one on the ground. The United Nations Secretary General says the world is heading for a catastrophe unless climate change is prioritised. Danny, is it a bit of an indictment um, of the developed world that we have these horrific statistics that Lachlan has just given us. And we're really, you know, the developed governments, they do appear to be backsliding on their commitments to tackle climate change, let alone their commitments to fund the aid and development that would be needed to make communities, vulnerable communities, more resilient. 
Yeah, absolutely, Imogen. And I come back to Nini's point about integrated approach. It seems to me in the developed world, if you want to call it that, we're now interested in electricity and gas prices. Uh, So to get people to think about things in other parts of the world is difficult. But secondly, to think of integrated is even more difficult. We can only think at one thing at the same time. So my question to Nini would be on a local or community level, I can understand an integrated approach, but on a national or global level, it seems to me to be very, very difficult to convince people who are now looking at their own problems with electricity and gas prices. Nini, your report actually calls for, I quote, aggressive action to deal with particularly extreme heat is what you you focused on. I mean, how challenging is it to achieve what, what, what Danny was talking about there? Well, I think that, well, one part of the answer is that the climate crisis is not something that's in the future. It's happening now. And so as humanitarian actors, we're responding to it every day. But we're talking about Pakistan or the Horn of Africa. Action is happening. The problem is that the action is not happening at the scale that we want it to happen. And what you were referring to, Lachlan, earlier as well, is that these one degree or half degree increases has an exponential direct impact on the number of cases of cholera or the number of people dying from heat waves. And so that's indeed, we need some of those there's both things coming together. I mean, what I find is interesting, and, and this is a bit more of a personal opinion rather than an institutional one, but I think the climate agenda has very much become an economic issue. And the scale of the COP and how many people are attending, the type of stakeholders that are attending from private sector down to the community level shows that I think there is a lot of interest and there are people taking action. It is not done in a harmonized way. Yet that said, I mean, that's still the ambition. That is still, we are looking at national adaptation plans, nationally determined contributions. Those didn't exist 10 years ago, those didn't exist seven years ago. The real issue is that I think although we're we're getting more and more traction, it is moving that to things changing on the ground. And and, um, yeah, I think it's it's a combination of a political commitment at the international level, of national level, bringing climate change more and more into sectors. The health sector is an interesting one in that it's really being ignored. It's less than 1% of adaptation finance has been going to the health sector, but it's increasingly recognized. So hopefully more and more health stakeholders also take this on board um, at national level, and then that trickles down to to local level. I don't want to be a complete pessimist on it. I think we're seeing action every day. It's just the scale and the speed is not where it needs to be. Infections have been recorded in six of Syria's 14 governorates, mostly in Aleppo. The sun beats down relentlessly on the parched landscape here in eastern Somaliland. We see the signs of the drought everywhere we look. Lachlan, I'll bring you in. So you had you had your hand up, and we know MSF, of course, of old for working in conflict zones and uh, in humanitarian crisis, specifically on health. But as I understand it, you are now launching a specific focus on planetary health, precisely for the reasons we've just been discussing. Yeah, so that's absolutely true, Imogen, and that's MSF recognizing that we can't we can't separate these these problems. We're a medical humanitarian organization, so we're predominantly interested in, in human health. But as whether we're talking about infectious diseases or disasters or, or heat waves or conflict, health problems in human populations arising from this interaction between humans, animals, and the environment that includes climate change constitutes the majority of the health problems around the world every day. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's largest scientific collaboration, very conservative group of scientists, 
recorded or noted in their sixth assessment report just released a few months ago that around 70% of the global burden of disease, and that includes deaths every year, are related to climate. That's not caused by climate, but it's sensitive to changes in climate. So to my mind, um, and I've been working on this topic for many years now, we have to be, without being too pessimistic, emphasising that climate change is bad for our health. This is not some distant future threat that's going to happen to poor people or farmers or only in developing countries or that it's only an economic issue. Okay, I'm biased. I'm a medical doctor, right? But I have to believe so I can get out of bed every morning that um, that the, the message around the health impacts of climate change has to be one of the most likely ways to enable the change that is essential for, for us all. Um, that's the, one of the main things that motivates me when I get up and go to work every day. Danny, you had your hand up. What did, what did you want to say there? Well, I was looking at the immediate energy crisis, and some of the countries are solving the problem of having less oil and gas from Russia by starting using coal again. Uh, so it does seem to me that there's an opportunity for a fundamental change in how we live by decreasing how much we, uh, the warmth in our homes and our offices. But in fact, people are not looking at the medium and long term. And therefore, my, my comment to Nini is I understand uh, what has to be done. I just don't see how we're going to get there in the developing countries unless we make some radical changes. It must be frustrating for you, Nini. I mean, the Red Cross, you work after environmental disaster, natural disaster. You work with the most vulnerable. Now, those communities, it's almost, it feels like it's one thing after another. And yet the kind of changes that you know that you have laid out that could make a difference, as Danny said, they're not happening. I mean, I still go to the point that things are happening in pockets. Things are happening in certain countries. We do have positive examples and from a range of countries. I mean, whether we're looking at cities as diverse. So going back a bit to the heat report, that's so one of the areas and that you were referring to that Imogen as well earlier, that it's something that affects us all. So this is not just the developed developing country problem. It's, it's we're all being affected by heat, um, certainly certain areas more so than others. From cities as diverse, we might be looking at Cape Town, which has totally changed their urban planning mandate to bring in green spaces to both aid with issues such as reducing the impact of heat island effects and making cities cooler through having green spaces, um, to being able to manage some floodwaters through having green spaces. We've got this whole concept of sponge cities in China, a totally different environment where we're looking at how can cities be built in ways that they manage floodwaters and, and we're not looking just at asphalt and concrete as a way and, and, and that can, you know, help us manage floods um, to, you know, places where we're living in Europe, where this, these ideas of, of green cities have been around for a lot, a lot longer in the UK. Um, that's just one example of where we're, we're starting to see ways of we're shifting the entire way we construct our our cities, our environment as a way that it's healthier in some of the issues you were mentioning. Indeed, coal, case in point again, uh, Lachlan was referring to that. We're not talking just of climate change, we're talking about air pollution as well, making cities healthier to live and breathe in, making them cooler. Um, and, and so I, I do still think that that we need to be focusing. It's it's again, I think action is happening, change is happening. It's just not as widespread as we need it to be. In particular, we're seeing pockets of, for example, my 
the examples I gave are not from areas of conflict or fragile contexts. Those are often people left and countries left behind um, and, and vulnerable parts within, in, within certain cities and communities as well. So I think it's more that we have solutions, we're applying the solutions, we just need to increase the access to these solutions. I'm very heartened to get almost to the end of the program and hear a note of optimism because in the 12 months that have elapsed since the last time we sat in the studio and talked about the climate ahead of COP26, the world has not felt like it's a better place. So Nini, thank you very much for pointing out that there are lots of good ideas and some of them are still being put into practice. Now, as I said, we're almost at the end of the program, but because COP27 is coming up, I want to ask each of you what you would like to see. MSF will be going to COP27. The Red Cross will be going to COP27. I'm going to ask Lachlan first, what would be a good outcome for you? What would COP27 have to say in its final declaration? And you could go home and say, finally. They got it. The MSF, as the world's largest humanitarian medical organization, and as an organization that has unique insights into how people live and what affects their health in, in some of the most challenging parts of the world, we have a responsibility to advocate on behalf of our patients. It's part of our social mission. And bringing the stories and, to the, to the best of our ability, the evidence of how climate change is affecting people and patients in places where we work is our role. And that's slightly different from what we'd like to see come out of COP. I mean, fundamentally, there needs to be, as we've already been discussing, immediate, urgent and sustained action to slow, halt and reverse the effects of climate change. That's the only way out of this mess. Danny, I'm going to come to you next, old cynic that you are. Do you think that government's are the ones that, particularly the big wealthy governments that could really show leadership, show direction and invest, are they listening? Well, I'm not sure that they're the most important actors. I think Nidhi's example of the pockets and the cities is extremely encouraging. So whatever happens at the big international summit meetings, I do think that the solutions probably will come from bottom up and that the examples that she gave are very optimistic. And it seems to me that more of the pockets around the world and more of the bottom gets to rise will be probably more important than some international organization meeting. Final few words to you then, Nini. I mean, the Red Cross is the one we look to. You're the ones that come help us when there's a flood. Wherever on the planet, here in Switzerland or in Pakistan, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent Movement, you are the ones. Now, do you agree with Danny that the change has to happen at the bottom, or is it already happening at the bottom? Do you need leadership from a summit like COP27? I mean, what would you like to hear the world leaders say? So I'll actually build on Danny's um, point, and, and, and thank you for bringing that, and that we need those bottom-up approaches. So to me, one of the very concrete ways to make that happen would be a dream in some something like in, in Sharm el-Sheikh to see it happen, that we've been keeping to hear that climate finance is going to be $100 billion a year. We're not there yet. It's time to be there. We're already a few years past what we set ourselves a target to be in 2020. 
we're seeing increasing investments, in particular, actually, on the green energy side, less so on adapting to the impacts of climate change. So if we could see a 50-50 finance for not only reducing our emissions, but dealing with these impacts we're seeing with this humanitarian crisis we're already experiencing every day, and then making that finance accessible to the local level so that those pockets of change that we're seeing, that, that strong action that's coming up from the community level, that it's enabled, that we can get those community early warning systems in place, those community food security programs, those community healthcare programs. That, to me, would be a dream come to coming out of Egypt. Well, let's hope that that dream does come true. As ever, it appears to be a dream that comes with a price tag. And that's one of the things that the countries with the money are struggling with, or they claim they're struggling with at the moment. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Nini Ikala Nyman of the Red Cross, our analyst Daniel Warner, and Lachlan McIver of Medicine Sans Frontieres, and to all of you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. Take a listen to our next episode, where we've got special guests from the UN Refugee Agency and the International Organization for Migration answering your questions about refugees, asylum and immigration. And have a look at some of our past episodes. We've got several devoted to the war in Ukraine, looking at prospects for peace and whether victims of war crimes will ever get justice. You can subscribe to Inside Geneva, and of course you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.